Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Guru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I am continuing the off-season preview episodes of the show with Adam Mares. He is the site manager for Denver Stiffs, and he's a contributor at Nylon Calculus, and somebody I love to talk to about the Denver Nuggets. And I think they have a, a really underrated and exciting off-season, and so we go through both the players that they have on the roster, a lot of young guys who we both really like, and what they can do in terms of their draft picks and cap space. Conversation runs about an hour, and for those of you who are interested in timestamps, those should be in the description. So, hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about the Nuggets offseason. I was actually just working on my prep for them for the Sporting News, because they're unusual in the sense that, while they can do a lot this summer, they also don't have to. They could largely run it back with the addition of draft picks. Yeah, the Nuggets are in an interesting position in that I think the best uh, scenario for them is to be bad again for one more year, to develop Moutier and Jokic and Harris and a lot of these guys and probably miss the playoffs. But they're in that spot where a lot of teams try to speed up the process. It's really one year of a rebuild, which was this last year with Mike Malone. The two years before that, we were bad but not rebuilding so I think the, definitely the, the key will be to, in my opinion, is to only make a, a big move if it's a really, really smart one and something that just falls into their lap. But if they're aggressive looking to push the timeline faster, I think that'll be a mistake. Yeah, and I like being able to negotiate from a position of strength, especially when you have guys that other teams could be interested in. And the, and the player, in terms of potentially moving somebody on the roster, that I think is the most compelling is Danilo Gallinari. For sure, and there's been you know talk about a lot of different teams that like him. The other name, and the injuries are the concern here, but the other name that I think fits on almost any roster is Wilson Chandler, and he missed all of last year, but you know, I think we'll probably get into a little bit of the Cavs situation, but I think he's a guy that would be an excellent fit alongside a LeBron James. He's a high basketball IQ. He's 6'8", and he can guard 2, 3, and 4. He's got a lot of versatility. It's just, the problem is he just never plays a full season, and he just missed an entire season. But he's a guy that I, I love him on the Nuggets, but I would love to see him on a contender because I think he would really fit in nicely. Yeah, I like Wilson Chandler a lot, too, and your point about him being a good player on a great team is very well-founded. I think that that's something that could help him a lot, also because I don't love him shouldering a lot of the offensive burden, but if he can get, you know, be the fourth or fifth best scorer on your on your lineup at a given time, I think he can do a really good job. Right, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I, I'm, I'm such a big fan of him for all the reasons you just said. I think... Like, Harrison Barnes is a better player than him, you know, just skill for skill. But I think he's the kind of guy that would fit onto a team that plays like the Warriors or the Spurs with passing and cutting and reads. He would fit on that team so well. And then defensively, he's an underrated on-ball defender, and he has a high IQ on defense. He's not the kind of guy – he's not like J.R. Smith that's getting lost on ro- after one rotation. He's a guy that three or four rotations, he's, he's right in stride. So – I'd love to see him. I love to see him on the Nuggets because I love his game. But if he was to get traded, I'd love to see him on a, a very good playoff team. And 
his contract, while it's a lot if he only is playing half of a season, especially if he's not around for the playoffs, he's getting about $12 million a year for definitely two more years, and then he has a player option worth 12.8 the following year. And so right. that is, you know, it's a lot of money if he's not going to play. But right. what we're going to see this year, and this, is, this will tie back also to Gallinari, is that players who are on existing contracts are going to look a lot better because you brought up Harrison Barnes and while Barnes is younger and probably a little bit better right now than a healthy Chandler, they're close. And yeah. Barnes is going to be getting 25 million a year or 22 probably is actually more accurate. But so like right. getting 22 million a year is a lot different than paying a guy 11. Oh, for sure. And I think Harrison Barnes will be a better player on say 20 NBA teams. Assuming health for both guys, I think Harrison Barnes is a better player for almost all teams. But for some of the upper-level teams that we're talking about, the, the San Antonios and the Clevelands and teams like that, I think Wilson Chandler would be the better player, or at least the better fit. So, um, And then obviously at half the price, that's a big factor too. With Gallo, you know, getting back to the original guy, he's a phenomenal player, and he's so good at getting to the line. He's a really underrated defender. He's pretty versatile on the defensive end. His defensive RPM numbers are always pretty good. He's a guy, I think, that likes the ball in his hands more than Wilson Chandler. Wilson would fit in on you know a lot of different roles if he's the fourth fifth guy or sixth guy on a team he's going to fit in with gallo i think if he doesn't touch the ball on two or three possessions he starts to get a little bit out of rhythm so that's the only thing i wonder about some of the different scenarios i hear his name thrown around in that's definitely well founded i i think a lot of it would have to depend on how he feels about being on a team that is a real contender like i think that it would definitely be frustrating if he did that and was on a team that let's say won like 45 games you know, right. where that's a little bit better. But I've seen from my own personal experience that some of those guys, when they get onto a team that's more in the 55 to 60 win range, that they go, oh, well, we're winning. This is kind of fun. You know, we, we I can live with this. But right. at the same point, what you might want to do with Gallinari, if one of those teams was able to secure him, would be to, to shift his role a little bit and have him be the offensive linchpin of the second units. This is incidentally something that I advocated for the Cavs doing with Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving at different moments in time. Just giving those guys a little bit of time to just remember, oh yeah, I can do this, I can be the guy. And generally speaking, as good as a team is, you know, even if we're talking about the Warriors, those second units need offense. And right. so th and they need creators. So doing that, and let's say you're replacing Gallo in that, like, so so he'll that move some of his minutes from with the starters, put somebody who's maybe a little bit more defensively capable in with that, maybe a high, you know, maybe a more limited, just, like, monster defensively, then you're getting the best of both worlds in that kind of a way. Right. Where you're, you're getting somebody who makes the other team's life harder, and you're getting somebody who can sustain your offense. Cleveland would be, I think, a really nice fit with him. Nate Duncan and I, when we did that mock off off season, or the mock trade deadline, we did a trade involving Love and Gallinari, and I still think that would make some sense. But it is going to depend on on the situation. And one thing I wanted to ask you, because you're closer to it, is Gallinari is signed for about 15 million for 2016-17, then has right. a player option for 2017-18 worth about 16. Right. My thought, as somebody who's not as connected with it, is that he will decline that player option and become an unrestricted free agent. Do you see it the same way? I do, and, and it, it depends on a lot of factors. There's a lot of moving pieces when we're projecting two years out. The first one, obviously, is where the Nuggets are. I think by that time frame, they're going to be a playoff contender. I think next year they probably miss the playoffs again, assuming they stay put. And the year after that, they're in very good position to, to make a good run at the playoffs. And if they're in that position, it's going to be a lot tougher for him because it'll be a team on the up. 
he'll be kind of at the end of his prime, and he might want to accelerate things a little bit. If the Nuggets struggle, if they make some, some moves and they're not on the trajectory that it appears they're on right now, I think he's definitely out. He's happy being here. He's, he's talked several times about how much he loves the city. I think he was really hurt by the New York Knicks trade um, when he came to Denver. So I think the whole trade dynamic or, or leaving a city dynamic is, is very unique very strange for him because I think he is so happy and such a loyal person. Um, but on the other hand, he was very close to George Carl, and he speaks very glowingly about George Carl and his time here. So I, I do think when George Carl left after that 57-win team and everything that's happened over the last three years, I do think it's changed his perspective a little bit about um, staying in Denver for the rest of his career or what have you. Yeah, and that certainly is a challenge when you, you kind of see it in a different way and when you've kind of grown into yourself in a city that you, that you want to do that. But I think you're right that, that this year will do it, but that also presents such a risk for the Nuggets because if you keep him for this year and then he leaves, you get nothing in compensation for him. And while right. Denver has a lot of assets, losing anybody as good as him for nothing is dangerous, but that also could make him a trade deadline candidate, though, of course, that depresses the value because that team is only getting him for, you know, a couple months and then the playoffs. Yeah. Go ahead. They're going to walk a very tight line with him, I think, next year. And I could definitely see him being traded. He's, the, he's like you said, he's the most valuable candidate on the team. But they are going to have to walk a tight, a tight line. You know, last year or two years ago, the locker room was a mess. The Nuggets' reputation was a mess. There was a scathing article by uh, Kevin Arnovitz about – the front office and some of the dysfunction between ownership and, and different things. And the Nuggets, that really hurt the Nuggets from a, uh, in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways was they had to rebuild their reputation with players. One of the things they did is they built a state-of-the-art locker room, which is you know was years overdue. But I think they just want goodwill towards players in the league to kind of build up that reputation and again. And guys like Jameer Nelson have said great things. Wilson Chandler, Danilo Gallinari have all said great things about the organization over the last two years, year and a half. And trading somebody that doesn't want to be traded or putting them somewhere where they don't want to be can go a long way to breaking that, that goodwill. So that will be another, another factor, I think, in how they handle Danilo. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, and I don't think personally that I can make it any farther with, in this without talking about Moutier, who one of one of my boys. And <laughs> he, what what do you what do you think about? So obviously he was horrendous at the beginning of the year, as right. happens a lot with teenage point guards. Looking at it in the totality, you know, with a more successful second half, we'll call it. Where do you see him now, and let's say a couple years from now? Well, right now, you hit it. Uh, he had a lot of turnovers, and his shot is just terrible. I think the shot thing is going to be what it is. I don't think he'll ever be a great shooter, but I do think it got a lot better just from a form standpoint. At the beginning of the year, he had this like double clutch. He would shoot it on the way down. He would kick his feet. He'd rotate his shoulders so that he was squared up when he, when he jumped, but then when he landed, he was almost sideways. The shot was ugly, and at the end of the year, he worked hard on it all year. He was a guy that was the last one in the gym at every practice, and, and he puts in the time. It was looking a lot better, and it was going in a lot more uh, when he came back from injury in March or, or, or February, whenever it was. And so I think that won't be an issue. The turnovers I don't think will be an issue either. A lot of those turnovers are just rookie turnovers. Things are going a little bit faster than he anticipated or that he's used to, and throughout the year he got better and better at that. He had a lot of games with like eight, nine turn uh, assists with zero turnovers or one turnover, so that's something he improved on. I think the biggest challenge for him from becoming a bad 
point guard to a good one and then a good one to a great one is going to be his ability to finish at the rim. He was horrendous at the rim this year, um, as were most of the Nuggets, and, and maybe that's that's part of it, but him especially was really bad at finishing with contact, finishing over taller players, exploding to the rim. All of those things were, were he was really bad at, so that's the area that I think he is most likely to improve, and it's going to open up the rest of his game. Yeah, I agree with you. He, he was definitely flawed there, and that is something that players can improve on over their course, both by having better craft and by getting better physically, you know, just to right. be able to handle it. And what I loved about Moutier for the entire time is that he, especially this shocked me at Summer League because I had heard some good things, but really seeing in person, his court vision for a guy who's kind of at his development point is phenomenal. He's right. great at seeing the court. He can he can make passes that most 19-year-olds can't make, and he wants to make those passes. That's, what, that's yeah. a, the, the parallel that I would make to John Wall. They're not on the same playing field physically. I mean, John Wall's a, a freak. But right. that mentality is incredibly important when, you, when you're looking for somebody who can be the steward of an offense throughout. And he's probably not going to be in that mold of the guy who's both a great creator and a great scorer. You know, like, that's probably right. not going to be him, but who cares? He doesn't have to be that. And if you can pencil him in, and I'm not completely sure that they can do this yet, but if you can pencil him in at, at a starting spot... That starts to really open things up for the Nuggets in terms of use of their resources, especially if they can sort out their center rotation. I would pencil him in. I'm probably a little bit higher on, on most, just having watched him and, and seeing all of his flaws. For somebody that has his advanced metrics, I, I'm, I'm much higher on him than anybody else that would that would rate the way he has. And, and a lot of that is, you mentioned his good vision, and I think you're right. The problem is he's just a half-step slow. I think athletically, his conditioning can improve a lot. He was playing 30 minutes a game this year, and I think he just got tired a lot. There was guys that were just quicker than him. Assuming he can improve even just marginally in those areas, that vision is going to start to pay off. A lot of times he'd make a phenomenal pass, and somebody would just get just a fingernail on it or a fingertip on it just to, to tip it away and get a steal. If he can just improve a half step, I think all of those, those um, strengths in his game will improve. So I would pencil him in, actually. And then defensively, he's actually very underrated as well. He's 6'5". He's really tall. He's got great defensive instincts and strength. So I think that'll become a factor to his game here in the next couple of years as well. I agree with you. And I think that eventually he could be able to guard, defend both guard positions, though I don't think you would want to use him really as the guy to defend, let's say, the, any twos that are go-to guys. Like, I think you'll want somebody right. better for that. And that's fine. You know, that that's something right. that you don't ask your point guard to do. You know, Clay Thompson is, is probably one of the only twos who does that, who bounces between the other teams, and he's not running the Warriors' offense. So there really aren't that many guys who are doing that. But right. the center position for Denver is shockingly deep. I think that when I was working on it, it's something that I watch a fair amount of the Nuggets that I can appreciate, but the number of guys that they have in their front court, and whether those guys are centers or power forwards for some of them is a little bit nebulous, but does it start with Jokic for you still? For me, it does, and it, it is an interesting question because Jokic was so phenomenal by the advanced metrics and by the eye test uh, this year that I think you would think it was a clear choice, but Nurkic is a really good defensive player. And there is always that question of do you build around a defensive center or more of an all-around center who's maybe less impactful on the defensive end? And that is a legitimate question. I mean, a lot of your, your great teams have defensive-minded centers. But Jokic is a guy, I mean, he played 20 minutes a game this year. He's a guy that's as skilled right now as a rookie as just about anybody in the league in terms of all-around skills. 
Mike Malone said that he was the best ball handler on the team when they do ball handling drills in practice. He has a very, very smooth three-point shot. He has probably 50 no-look assists where he, you know, he looks away and drops it off. I mean, he's an incredibly skilled guy. For me, I'm really curious to see what, obviously, what more minutes does for Jokic, but I'm also interested in seeing what a higher usage would do. He's a, his numbers, I don't have the stat in front of me, but his uh, assist per touch numbers were through the roof, meaning the more often they would play through him at the elbow or in the post, he would make something of it. And I'm curious if he gets more elbow touches, if they initiate the offense through him more, if he's going to be able to keep up that same rate uh, of assist or if he's going to at least be pretty close to it. I suspect he will because he's that talented, but I'd really love to see them play through him more. Yeah, for me, his offensive role should be somewhat similar to what Blake Griffin's ideal offensive yeah. role is right now. But he, Jokic has a better jump shot than Blake Griffin does. He's, of course, not the athlete that right. even that Blake is now. And Blake has, of course, taken a few steps back from where he was when he was, you know, just dunking on Timofey Mozgov and everybody else on the planet. But that says a lot about how good Jokic is. And a point that I feel like it's worth belaboring is that he's young. You know, when you think about yeah. Euros coming in, you know, sometimes they're like Boban where they're in their mid-20s. Jokic right. is, he's what, 20 right now? Yeah, he's 21. Actually, just turned 21 two months ago. Okay, so yeah, so 21, that's that's nothing. You know, that's a couple, right. year, that's a couple years in college. That's not, you know, you, you made a life in Europe and then you came over as a pro. And yeah. so that's a really nice thing. I believe that, he, like we talked about with Gallinari, that a part of his thing could be being better, like be, being the steward for the second unit. I think that could be something eventually that he could do. But uh-huh. with his ceiling, I don't think you have to start there. I think you can you right. can try it more. And he has defensive potential. He seems like a very smart guy to me. And Absolutely. we've seen in the NBA before that an intelligent player, like the, a guy like Marc Gasol is probably a good example of this. Marc Gasol, at 21 years old, didn't look like he was going to be a good defensive player. Like right. Marcus Ola, 25, didn't look like he was going to be a good defensive player. Maybe at 25 might be, actually. You might have figured it out by then. But anyway, you get the point. Right. So if he can be a good communicator, if he can do all that kind of stuff, then you start to talk about somebody who is in the conversation for one of the being a b- above average all around center, you know, and then with his offensive game, that takes it to a whole nother level. Nurkic, I really like because he fits into that into that more traditional mold of a guy who is a good defender. I think he's underrated. I think he actually can do a decent job in pick and roll as well. He's I think he's better as a rim protector than a pick and roll guy. Right. And he's efficient offensively. So he fits into those boxes and there is a justification for that, as you said. Yeah, and it's really interesting and I'm actually looking at the defensive RPM numbers and Jokic actually ranked higher this year. By the eye test, Denver's able to play a lot a lot better defensively with Nurkic in there, but it is worth noting at least that Jokic ranked higher than him by a substantial margin for centers. But But Nurkic was dealing with injuries, right? Yeah, he was, and he was dealing with injuries, and he was also dealing with, you know, some... I think him and Malone didn't quite click. I think he was dealing with injuries and slower to recover from those than what the Denver training staff and coaching staff anticipated. I don't want to read in or speculate too much on that, but there were definitely issues in the locker room with him in terms of just his, his effort off of the court and getting ready to come back. So, But when he was on the court, he's a defensive force. I mean, his rookie season, he went toe-to-toe with Mark Gasol, toe-to-toe with uh, Boogie Cousins, and and really shut those guys down to an extent defensively, blocking their shots, getting in their head, forcing them into tough looks. 
he has a lot of defensive upside. Offensively, I'd actually say that he's, I don't think he is very efficient. His shooting at the rim was horrendous this year. He rushes shots when he catches them on short rolls. He doesn't really have any go-to post moves or touch around the rim. He does have a decent jump set jump shot from the elbow, and he has really good vision for passes. So there's potential to work there. But I think offensively, his finishing is somewhere around a 0 or a 1 on a scale of 10 in terms of development. He has a very, very long way to go to, to finishing at the rim to make himself have gravity on pick and rolls. That's true. I also think that from the eye test, I thought he looked a lot better on that his rookie year. It could just be just the, yeah. games, the games that I saw. And when a guy is coming back from injury, and it's funny that the guy I'm thinking of for this is former Nugget Timofey Mozgov, I always <laughs> discount that kind of stuff when a guy is playing and it doesn't look like he's 100%. Because right. that a lot of finishing at the rim can relate to confidence. And confidence can be something innate, but it can also be just your confidence and your physical ability to get there. And so yeah. I give a little bit more credence to his success the prior year, but you reach the point when it's been a calendar year or it'll be a year and a half when the next season starts, where then you start to have to look if, if the new evidence, let's say in November or December of this coming year, is, is that he's still struggling in that way, then you have to start to calibrate to say, okay, maybe this is more what it's like. But I really like Nurkic. I think that he can be a part of a successful team. I think the two of them together is w one of the best young center combinations in the league. Of course, Absolutely. I would I would rather have Towns, but everybody would rather have Towns. <laughs> and, yeah. and and another guy who makes their front court fascinating to me is Joffrey Levert. I'm pretty vocal in in not liking Joffrey's game, and, and I'll break it down like this. He's a really good hustle guy. He he's a energy off the bench guy, and he's come in and actually turned games along with that other the rest of the bench unit for Denver. He's got a decent looking jump shot, you know, that goes in enough for him to be a stretch four. Although I don't think teams over, uh, I don't think he has a ton of gravity so that teams overplay him out on the perimeter. But he can hit it down when he's open. I just don't like his court awareness. A lot of times he's in the way. He's clogging the paint or he's cutting into the ball handler. And not just a little bit, but a lot. This happens every single game when he's on the court, heavy minutes. I don't know. Awareness is the biggest thing in basketball that I think is difficult to teach. Some, you know, you can teach guys jump shots. You can teach them their footwork in the post. But just having a feel for when to cut, when not to cut, where to cut, when to stay, when to drag your defender out to create spacing, he seems to, to be lacking in that in a pretty big way. And then on the other side of the ball, his, his coverage in pick and rolls, he, he's a guy that can get lost very easily. One rotation, two rotations, and, and next thing you know, he's given up a wide-open rebound. So I'm a little bit lower. He's also, I think, 24. He's, he's like you were talking about earlier with, with other Euros where he comes in a lot older. He's that guy that, uh, that, that is quite a bit older. And Laverne, as a rotation guy, you know, as somebody you give 10 to 15 minutes to, he's interesting because he can he can yeah. do that talent. But what's different about the Nuggets is they actually have guys for that. They don't they don't need him, <laughs> but they can. But they could of course trade him. He's only going to make 1.7 million next year. So if they wanted to, I think they could get an asset. But my concern with Laverne is kind of it kind of echoes what you're saying, but it's a little bit more basic, which is that he is the type of tweener that is still a problem in the NBA. And what I yeah. mean by that is, I offensively, I think he would work a lot better as a center than as a power forward, just because his confidence right. in stretching the floor would just make centers uncomfortable. There's a parallel right. to Myers Leonard out there. And that is a good thing. The problem is, if he's your center, your defense isn't going to be very good. Correct. And so you can afford that for the right guy as a second unit player. You know, there are teams that do a lot worse than him. 
in that way, right. just because there are teams that play centers that just suck. That's that's right. a part of this. So you have that you have that kind of thing, but when you are aiming high and he is going to be on the last year of his contract and then he's going to be a restricted, restricted free agent, I think what you do with him is you just say, um, you know, if he's around, that's fine. And if he's not around, we're not going to cry about it. So you hope that somebody really falls in love with him, though. And I think that's probably what Denver will do. I, I can easily see him not being on the Nuggets roster next year for as part of a big deal or as part of a smaller deal where he's more of a principal piece, but I don't think they would hate to miss him, and I also don't think they're looking necessarily to, to, to ship him out of town. So the other kind of key piece, in a way, to their front court rotation is Kenneth Fareed. And Fareed, he's interesting because I'm, I've never been the biggest fan of him, just because I think that you know his, his strengths and weaknesses are just not as valuable in the league as it's going now. Right. But his contract is, you know, it is long. It is another three seasons at about, you know, about $13 million per. But that's going to look a lot better in two months than it looks right now. And, yeah, and I'm really interested to hear your, you know, more of your thoughts about that because that was the big thing when he signed it two years ago and then it went in effect this, this last season is that that was such big money. $12 million was such big money. And, you know, I don't even think I've wrapped my head around how much things are going to change and what $12 million will mean next season. But, uh, like you said, his skill set is tough. And in a league where shooting is so important and pick and roll defense is so important, he's a guy that doesn't shoot and isn't very good in pick and roll, surprisingly, for a guy that is so athletic. What he is good at offensively, and this is underrated, is that he's really, really good at rolling to the rim and creating gravity. Kind of like DeAndre Jordan does, where he jumps so high and he's so quick and he finishes so well that you kind of have to, to stay a step closer to the paint to kind of take that away so that they don't even throw it. The same is true with Kenneth Fareed. When he's rolling down the, the middle of the court, everybody has to collapse because if he gets an extra step and he's able to jump, that lob is a really easy play. So offensively, he tends to to help things, even though he's not scoring, as long as you have proper shooters around the arc. Um, the bigger issue, I think, is probably defensively. He just He's such an athletic guy. He's so quick. He's so fast. He's so mobile. And yet, he just doesn't know how to contain pick and rolls. I mean, that would be a recipe for being a guy that's a great hedge guy, but yet he's always out of position on, on hedges and, and screens. So maybe a better coach, a different coach, a more defensive-minded coach that can work on some of the basis, basics can help him make a big leap in that regard, but so far that hasn't happened. Yeah, and the other concern is that I don't love him as a help defender. And so if you could, if if you get him out of the pick and rolls, it's not like he's providing much value there either. So that's a little right. bit of a problem because you have to you have to hit through those. But I'll I'll give the money background now. So the line that I've been using is that for this coming year, so for 2016, 15 million is about an an average starter. So somebody who you're comfortable with, but it's not your best right. guy or anything like that. So then when you're in the 11 to 12 million range, that's either a low-end starter or a quality sixth man at a position of value. So this mm-hmm. there was actually uh, an interesting thing. I was talking about this with, I think it was Kevin Pelton, about whether Myers Leonard could be worth 12 million even if you never intend on starting him. Just with the idea right. that getting 20 minutes a game from a center, like kind of like what the, the Nuggets have with their guys just on on cheap contracts, you know, teams could be paying $12 million a year for that. And that is 2016. The cap is not spiking again, but increasing again in 2017. And then right now it looks like it's going to stay about the same for 2018. So okay. that'll probably kick it up 
kick that ex estimation about two million. So what that means is that an average starter will be about 17, and then you're getting into so a solid bench player is about 14, so then you're looking more like a 7th, 8th man. And that is when I think Fareed could be more reasonable at his number. And the other reason why that helps, you know, that extra year is that three years is a big commitment for him right now. Like So you think about that he's, yeah. he is what he is. You know, he's probably yeah. not going to get a whole heck of a lot better unless you can coach him up. You know, phys physically, yeah. physically, the cake is baked at this point. Mentally, right. it can still improve. Right. And so you have to, you kind of have to deal with that. So for three years, teams are fundamentally optimistic. My favorite example of this is Milwaukee basically didn't get Eric Bledsoe in the trade that, that where they sent J.J. Redick to the Clippers, partially because they didn't want to take on Karan Butler's contract, because they thought, oh, well, we can use this cap space better. That was an expiring deal. Then, at the end of the summer, when they had all their space left, they actually traded for Karan Butler from Phoenix. Right. So, like, teams are going to come into every summer, but especially this summer, saying, oh, look at what we can do. So there is a possibility that a team will just be sitting there with 20 to 30 million and go, ah, screw it. Right. I think that's a lot more likely next year where a team, a team will be sitting there and go, oh, you know, two years, he can, he can help make us better, especially actually a team that is not as good where they can say, okay, well, if we bring him in, you know, he's going to, he can help be a part of what makes our second unit less terrible, like a shallow team and two years, not a big deal. So I think the expectation would be that unless something really surprising comes along. However, I'm most interested in Farid in that sense, kind of on a similar note, actually, as a part of a larger trade, because if you are right. trading, if you're trading, let's say Danilo Gallinari, and you end up finding that team like the Cavs, who are basically have no flexibility anyway, you know, they, let's say it is Cleveland and for whatever reason, they, they think that they're not happy with whatever Channing Fry did or whatever, you know, like if, yeah. if that kind of a situation happens, then his contract is, is much less of a negative because you're not sacrificing flexibility. So right. he could potentially be a piece in a trade like that, especially if the, if the Nuggets had a little bit of leverage. I just think that that's unlikely, but it's possible and worth keeping an eye on. And I think that's probably, the, I agree with you, that's the most likely scenario. I don't see anybody targeting Kenneth Farid as the guy, the main component of any trade, but I definitely see him being paired with either Gallo or Wilson Chandler, somebody of that ilk, and um, and, and then making space for him. And lastly on him, I think his perfect team, because he does have value, if he left the Nuggets right now with draft picks coming back, you know, nothing that of immediate impact, the Nuggets would take another step back. They would be worse. He makes the team better when he's out there. So um, I think the ideal team for him would be somebody that has a stretch five that's also a rim protector. I know there's like three of those in the league, not very many. Um, so like a Carl Anthony Towns, for example. And then you just ran him with a pick and rolls with a point guard that could shoot because he'd be very difficult to contain in the pick and roll if the paint was open. But again, there's two or three centers in the league that fit that mold. So it's kind of tough to, to fit him into a team. Yeah, and I've thought about him on the Hawks a little bit, just because I think with their yeah. with their point guards and stuff, and just because with they've been disappointed with Tiago Splitter, but just having an, a guy who can rebound because they have some major issues on that end, you know, like a team like that could sell themselves on him, but they're going to need to kind of lock in a lot of other things along the way. But like theoretically, if if they if let's say they re up Al Horford for that time, 
and you yeah. come to them saying, "Hey, Tiago Splitter, let's say he's still hurt, and basically just take on take on his salary." And, you know, yeah. I don't think they would do it, but they'd consider it, and there will it's be guys like that. Sure. Yeah, and so I want I want to go quickly to the backcourt again, and do you feel like Jameer Nelson has another two years left? It seems like he's happy there. He's mentoring Emmanuel Mudiay. How would you, if you were in the room for the for the Nuggets, would you be approaching the possibility of adding another point guard of basically any stripe? I don't know, and and one thing that I think went under the radar nationally was that Jameer wasn't very happy with uh, DJ Augustine coming in. That DJ obviously ate up some of the minutes. Jameer was hurt when he first got here, but he recovered over time and stayed on the bench. Uh, DJ was eating all those minutes, so I don't think. And, and Jameer has said things to the extent of. You know, I want to see what Denver does. If they re-sign DJ Augustine, then he doesn't want to be here because he knows that means he's playing 10 to 15 minutes a game max. So I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I don't think the Nuggets are going to re-sign DJ Augustine, and I don't think they're necessarily looking for a point guard in this draft, but if that's what fell to them and they felt that they had somebody that they could develop, then I definitely think Jameer would be out. And that makes sense. I think that that's the kind of the line you want to toe is that you should try to, you know, you have him under contract, and he at at about four and a half million for the next two years. Is that a reasonable yeah. number that if if somebody else wants him they can trade for him? But if the opportunity presents itself, he is not so good that he should he should stop you from making a good decision. Correct. And and that's exactly the way they'll they'll handle him I'm I'm sure this off season. So there are a couple more guys I want to go through, but part of what makes the Nuggets so compelling are their draft assets. And so the Nuggets have three first round picks, seven, yeah. fifteen and nineteen and I, I I was amused thinking about it because I was like, oh, you know, a team that has that kind of assets. There is this weird parallel to what they ended up with after they traded down with Chicago in the McDermott trade. Right. And that worked out really well for them. Yeah, they got Gary Harris. So they gave up McBuckets, and they got Gary Harris and Yusef Nurkic, who are both rotation pieces. You know, uh, Nurkic is one of the first guys off the bench for, for center, and Gary Harris is a starter who made a big leap this year. I don't see them keeping all three picks. They have three picks this year. I don't think they even have that many open roster spots, assuming that they bring back all the players that it looks like they're going to bring back. They also have two second-rounders that they'll probably do draft and stash with. But I just don't see them keeping all three. Mike Malone himself has, has said over and over again how he hopes they don't keep all three. I mean, I think kind of jokingly, but the team's already really, really young. I would guess the minutes played over the last three months of the season, the Nuggets had the youngest team because they were starting Gary Harris, Emmanuel Moutier, Jokic, Barton was getting a lot of minutes. So all of their guys were 22 or under. To bring in a couple of rookies would just be not a D-League team because the guys can compete, but it would be kind of a Philadelphia situation where you don't have a team that can actually compete. You're just completely rebuilding at that point. So the more likely scenario is they keep number seven and trade 15 and 17 either for a player, for future picks, or to move up slightly, or they they package all three to try to move up to, to number three or somewhere higher in the draft to make sure they get their guy. What they need to be praying for is that one of the teams, probably the, the Celtics, maybe the Suns, just sits there and goes, ah, we 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 have all these guys about even, so let's just make that trade where you move into the you move into the seven spot, and then if the Nuggets really like somebody, they can bring them in. And the guy who I've been pining for 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 Denver is Jamal Murray. And yeah. the reason why I like Jamal Murray is that he just gets buckets, and yeah. you can settle everything else. I think he'd be a wonderful fit with Moutier, and I think that 
he he shouldn't be running an offense, but you have Emmanuel Moutier. He's not going to be doing that. And so he's a great open shot shooter, and he's a little bit flawed defensively. I don't care. And right. so you, you fit him in. As crazy as it sounds, considering their front court, Bender would be really fun for Denver because he, you know, play basically be their be their pure four, and they figure out the center rotation and say, okay, so you have that locked in, and it's just another guy that you can do. And there are other players they can sell them on on, on depending on who they like. And seven will be good enough to get whoever falls. But if there's right. somebody that they want to be more affirmative with, they're going to do that. But the challenge is, you're going to have to find a team. That unless the Nuggets are willing to trade some of their guys, some of their guys that are currently on the roster, which might involve Gary Harris, it would really depend on who they were interested in, could be kind of a challenge. So they might just kind of have to take whoever's there. And and that might be what they do. I think the, the funny thing is, I think the Nuggets are in the boat that you just described Phoenix as hopefully being in, and that I think they like everybody from like five to fifteen kind of equally. So I think they're also going to be somewhat likely to just say, well, we have these guys as our safety if we can't move up to get, you know, the, the number one guy. You mentioned Jamal Murray, and, and he's such an interesting guy for me because the number one thing the Nuggets need is shooting. I think they were the second worst team in the in the league this year on open and wide open three-point shots. They got a handful of them. They got enough of them through their offense, but they just can't hit them. I think adding a guy like Jamal Murray would, would go a long way. And then just playmaking he wouldn't be a point guard, I don't, I don't think per se, but he is a guy that, you know, you run an action on the strong side and the ball reverses to the weak side. He's a guy that can at least attack the paint, uh, off of a scrambled defense, and Denver needs one of those. Gary Harris is a really good cut and finisher, but he's not necessarily a great playmaker with the ball in his hands. You know, you don't run too many pick and rolls for him and, and expect the, the offense to run. So I think Jamal Murray is a very interesting name that's projected to go in that five, six, or seven range. Yeah, and I would also, while seven might be a little bit high for him, I think Luwalu would be fascinating on the Nuggets just because he's just a pure defense. Like uh, he could be, he could eventually do more offensively, but as a possible stopper, you know, Gary Harris is more of a guard defender, and that's great. That's an important thing in the league. But if you could get Luwalu and he can defend threes, that's just yeah. a, a huge rotational piece. That if you can get him at, you know, let's say two, three million a year for the next four years, even if he doesn't work out perfectly. That's awesome. And I also think that there's a possibility that if the if the guards run early, because we don't know exactly where this draft is going to go, that if the guards run early, you know, Heald, Murray, those type of guys, right. Chris Dunn, I would take it probably take any of those guys if they fell. Right. Then if they if they fall out, if, they, if those guys are already gone, then you start to think about the fun of potentially, like, trading down just because they don't need a big man at all. I mean, if let's say Jakob Pertl is, like, the best guy on the board. Right. Right. You don't draft Jakob Pertl if, if you, <laughs> Definitely unless, not. unless you like are willing to move him. But you know, maybe maybe Milwaukee would give up a small asset and you go down to ten, and it's basically the same guys that are on the board for you. So then you you could do that. You could bounce in a couple different directions. And also something that makes the Nuggets even more fascinating with all this is that they have cap space. So right. that can be used in a, a lot of different ways. That could be either to take on somebody unsavory that another team wants. The archetype for this would probably be either the Sixers taking on JaVale McGee from the Nuggets right. or, more recently, the Blazers taking on Anderson Verjao. Both right. those are, are possibilities. But the, it could go in a couple of other directions where a team, they I think the Nuggets would be one of the single most interesting teams to in early July just basically say, hey, we, you know, they'll try to spend their money. They should try to spend their money. But right. if you, let's say, 
I, I don't expect Kevin Durant to go to a new place, but let's say let's say you get a high-end guy and you need to clear a little bit of space to just say, hey, you can send him to us. And right. that's it's really valuable, actually, in the league to have teams that are willing to do that because we talked earlier about the idea of teams being fundamentally optimistic. And they're, yeah. they don't have to be. Here's the, the underlying reason that, because I think that's a great plan. If I was running the Nuggets in a vacuum, this is exactly what I, I think I would do. And we talked about Danilo Gallinari maybe not wanting to, to take that player option in 2018. If the Nuggets signed an albatross contract that was two years long, but just so that they can get assets, that's the type of thing that I think Gallo would say, I'm out of here. Like, they took a step back, even though it was smart. It just doesn't fit my timeline. But the bigger elephant in the room in this situation is that Denver was dead last in attendance this year. They're dead last in Internet traffic. They're dead last in television ratings. The fans have left Pepsi Center, and they've left the Denver Nuggets over the last three years. And taking on, you know, spending a bunch of money this summer on a guy that everybody knows is not part of the future is going to just reset all of that this year. That might happen anyway. The fans aren't guaranteed to return. But I think ownership would have a very hard time stomaching the idea of, well, we're intentionally extending this rebuild another year. We're intentionally doing some, taking a move that doesn't pay off this year but pays off the next year. And I don't. that's going to be a much harder sell for Denver than it would be maybe for some of these other teams. Certainly for a team like Portland that has a full arena, made the playoffs and everything else, I think it was easy for them to stomach such a move. It, it made more sense. I, I don't mean to make a joke of it, but you're saying they wouldn't trust the process. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Denver fans and Denver ownership is not trusting any type of process right now. So a couple other guys that we haven't discussed that I, I wanted to get your thoughts on. Will Barton had a great year, had really, really exploded. He's on a still on a wonderful two more years, $3.5 million a year, wonderful contract. Dirt cheap. Dirt cheap. If on a good team, so a team better than the Nuggets are right now, do you think sure. that he's more of a, a second-unit guy, or do you think he could potentially be a starter? I think he's always a second-unit guy. I mean, that's what he is for Denver, even though he plays as many minutes as a starter, but he sits that first six minutes or so of the game and then provides the spark. I like his game a lot. He's aggressive in transition. He's pretty good defensively. I mean, he holds his own defensively. He has an okay shot. It looks horrendous, but it goes in, yeah, I think, 35% or something from three this year, which is pretty decent for a guy that never settles for his three. He just takes it when he's open. I think he's going to be the same on the Nuggets as he, as he would be on any other team. A spark off the bench that can give you some points. He'll probably be a little bit up and down or hit or miss in that some games he's going to come in and score 20 points for you and win the game, and then other games he's going to play 15 minutes and, and really not make much of an impact. That's just kind of his nature. The last thing I'll say about him is that I don't know. He's, he's not a, a dumb IQ or low IQ player or anything by any means, but I don't know how he would fit in with some of your more smarter, more disciplined second units. For example, Atlanta is a type of team that is kind of not, not rigid, but they're just a free-flowing read and react type offense and I think Barton is the kind of guy that just goes he's just instinctual just attacks he out hustles everyone and that's where his value comes from and everything you just said I agree with all of it and that's exactly why I think this would be a great time to use him as a sweetener and a bigger deal because mm -hmm. he is incredibly valuable on his contract and he'll also he'll the, whoever if they trade him they'll have full bird rights on him yeah, because right. it was a three-year contract, and it'll have a dirt-cheap cap hold. So if he can even go to a team that is going to have some space then at some point, that would be a huge asset. He's a good fit, but 
he can't really expand his role. You know, he is what he is, right. and he's a wonderful player. Like, I see a lot of the positive in the negative with Jamal Crawford in him, where a guy who, yeah. when he finds his lane, he'll be in it for five to ten years, and that's great. You know, like, yeah. I think sometimes people get disappointed when somebody doesn't become more than they are, but there is an intense value to being a scorer off the bench if you can be reasonably efficient and try hard. And yeah. he's better defensively than Jamal Crawford probably ever was. And he, he was, I think, uh, the most consistent nugget all year, and he, I, I believe he had the most double-digit scoring games this year by a, a, a fairly decent margin. So Gallo was the leading scorer, but Will Barton just almost every single game you knew what you got from him. Every now and then he'd have a bad game, and he kind of tailed off the last month of the season. But for the first four or five months of the season, he was just you absolutely knew what you were going to get from him. Yeah, I think that's definitely a fair way of putting it. One quick thing I want to do a little little thing with you. So the question is, will they be back next year? We'll start okay. with we'll start with Darrell Arthur. Man, that's a tough one. He's another guy I really like. The Nuggets have a lot of guys that would be good on a good team, but guys that aren't good enough to make your team good. And Darrell's one of those guys. Phenomenal defender. His shots actually really consistent. Surprisingly consistent. And he stays within himself for the most part. My gut tells me, I mean, he has the player option, which I think he declines, but he wanted to be in Denver last year. He was very vocal about that as well. He, he thought Denver was a playoff team. And again, that wasn't just like everybody thinks their team's a playoff team. I mean, he was, he's a competitor. He wants to win above all else. My gut tells me it's 60-40 yes. Interesting. Okay, because, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how clear his spot is in the rotation, but that's also because I think Gallo and Chandler should be playing more at the four than they are, but that's just me. Right, but, right. Okay, next up, late signee, Jakar Sampson. Um, they they can waive him for free, I believe. There's there's nothing guaranteed there, right. and it really, shake, it really shakes down to what Denver does in the draft because he's a guy that, I guess, knows the system, and he hustles, and he's been here, and he's a great locker room guy, by the way. Everybody loves him there. I don't think he has much value or upside as far as like a long-term rebuild. So if they end up keeping all three of their picks, if they can't find a good deal, then I say he's gone. If they end up trading him, I think he's back. Last one, Axel Tupain. Man, that's another tough one. He's just like Jakar. I mean, their skill sets are different, but it's the same way in that I don't think he's part of the future. The best you can say about him is that he kind of knows he's familiar with the locker room and coach. He would be probably the, the first one traded between the two, between him and Jakar Sampson's, or the first one waived, I guess that's what you would say. And so I would say with him it's probably 30%. But, again, if they trade all of those draft picks and there's roster spots, then he'll be there. Yeah, makes sense. And and Augustine, I think you're expecting, won't be here. He will not. I would be surprised if he was here. So we've talked about it a little bit, one way that the Nuggets could use their cap space. Are there any free agents that you think would be a good fit? I mean, they're obviously not going to be in contention this year for Max guys. But just in terms of, you know, maybe like an under-the-radar guy to do maybe the analog to what Portland did last year with Ed Davis. Right. You know, there's nobody on my radar uh, in that regard. And, and part of that is just because I do think they have these draft picks coming in. They've been pretty successful at it, and they don't have a lot of roster spots. So any free agent signing just means they're cutting somebody or they're, they're, they're trading multiple parts for, for one player. And I just don't see that in the cards. They're also a team that, as we talked about, is two years away from being a playoff team and three years minimum from being a contending team. So I just don't know that you bring in a player uh, through free agency unless they have a specific role to to augment one of your younger guys. Yeah, I, that's why I think they would be more logical on the restricted market, just as the idea of maybe one of those lower-end guys who's not going to get a max offer, like Alan Crabb is a very good player. 
Yeah, but for sure. Alan Crabb is not going to get a max offer. So maybe you can make him something that's, you know, that's fair, paying him, I don't know, let's say 10, 11 million a year. He would add to their shooting, and you, you probably expect that Portland's going to match. But hey, you make him an offer, you make his agent happy. It's a, an offer that you'd be happy if, if Portland declined to match it. So, like, you, of course, you never make an irresponsible offer. Because and that, I think that's what they'd be likely to do within the division, especially where all the, there's, Portland, there's Minnesota, there's Utah and Denver who are all kind of in the same boat in that they're rebuilding, they're on the cusp of making the playoffs and contending or they're they're right there at the playoffs. So I could see them definitely trying to to take away some of the cap space for Portland by making a little bit over the top the top offer for Crab. That's an excellent example. Yeah, and, and another guy who would make some sense there, I again I think his price tag will be outside of the Nuggets would be former Nugget Evan Fournier. <laughs> It's such a funny one, that, that one in particular. Just the, the domino effect that that trade had, because it brought in a Flalo, that was, that was the deal, and then a Flalo went to Portland, which brought in Barton, who's been very good for us. So and a first-round pick. And a first-round pick, correct. So, so it's, all, it's kind of a favorable deal that Denver made, even though Fournier's turned out to be really good and would probably be very useful on this team because of his shooting. I don't know that they're going to go back there for him. Um, I, would be, I, I think Crabb is probably more likely. He probably checks more boxes. But he's another one that I could see. But, again, I don't think the Nuggets are going to be playing that game too aggressively this summer. It pains me as a UCLA alum, but I just realized <laughs> I hadn't thought of this, that Aaron Afalo parallels Rudy Gay in the sense that all of the recent trades involving him, the team that won the trade was the team that traded him. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of true, isn't it? It's definitely true. And I've, I've always disliked his game, and his time, his second stint here in Denver really soured him on me. I always say he's like Kobe Bryant if Kobe was terrible. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but but Aflalo, I think, actually, like, what people thought he was would actually be a nice fit for, for the Nuggets eventually, but it's just that Aflalo wasn't that guy. You know, a guy, a reliable defensive two who can hit open shots. And if the Nuggets could find that guy, whether if Gary Harris can develop the shooting touch to become it, that would be great. Or if they can get it from somewhere else, like the draft or free agency, that would help. And why I find Denver so interesting, beyond the fact that they have a nice core and yet have a lot of players that you could consider outside of it. Like, if you consider, like, that they have one of the best combinations of point guard and center with young guys, you know, under the age of 25 in the entire league. But you could make a legitimate argument that their, like, their best players, their highest profile players, are not included in that group. You know, Gallo, Wilson Chandler, you know, those type of guys. And so what they choose as their identity and what they do with that, because what I would be doing, because it's just who I am, is I would be looking towards the future and saying, hey, look, these guys are all, you know, Moutier's 20, I think, now. Jokic is 21 now. Nurkic is early 20s. To say, okay, let's focus on them and do something with Gallinari. But if you can bridge that gap, especially because they have draft picks owed to them by other teams, then you can do that. But I just think shooting the moon is so unlikely. I, I agree with you just from from a reasonable standpoint. I mean, we're, we're reasonable basketball fans that... that we have the patience to say, oh, I'm really curious what this team looks like in two years. I just worry about ownership. And, and this isn't even a knock on them. They're, they're not making as much money as they should be or as, much, as most teams are because nobody's coming to the games. They're losing fans. So that, that's the only caveat to that whole, that whole plan. Just for fun, how would you feel if they re-signed J.R. Smith? I would feel pretty sick. I <laughs> I have nothing against J.R. Smith. He was actually a lot of fun to root for when he was here in Denver. He was he was part of our golden years, so to speak, over the last two decades. But there's just no I, 
there's no role for him. And I'm, I'm sitting here breaking down uh, game two footage of the finals for an article for Vice, and I slow down every possession he's on defense because I'm just watching him thinking, what the heck is he doing? Yeah, and he's exactly kind of what you don't want in the Nuggets in terms of a, a guy that you can that you can that you can hope for internal improvement. Jr. is it's a weird thing for me because there are a series of players who I think, and Gerald Green incidentally is another one of these guys, who I feel like if you gave them a specific narrow defensive assignment, they could probably do it reasonably well. But for whatever reason, despite all their time, Jr.'s thirty now. Gerald Green is I don't know probably about the same. Right. That they've never gotten that, and actually the analog might be Dion Waiters. Waiters got the closest thing to that and did a decent job. Fortunately, right. he's only 24, and he's going to get paid more than he's probably going to get paid more than Green and Smith combined this year, partially because of that, and partially because he has more leverage than those guys ever did. There's more leadership in the in the Oklahoma City uh, locker room than there is in Denver by a mile. And Denver had a great locker room this year. Last, two years ago, the last year of the Shaw era, was probably the worst you can imagine a locker room being. Guys were just not showing up, not calling in, just not showing up to practice and shoot arounds. The press conferences were awkward. The locker rooms were awkward. It was, it was pretty remarkable. So this year was a, it was a really great locker room, despite there not being really too many vocal leaders. There's just a lot of good guys, hardworking young guys that want to be there. Bringing in a J.R. Smith would be such a wild card. They got rid of Nate Robinson basically just because they needed him out of the locker room. They needed him to stop talking and playing his music and and, and throwing fits. So <laughs> I don't see any moves like that happening in Denver, not after what happened in 2015. Are you happy with Mike Malone as the coach of the future? I'm happy with Mike Malone as the coach of right now a, a lot. He did a great job of churning the locker room around, getting these guys focused. I thought the team played hard almost every single night of the season, which is not something you could say at all the year before. He's a, a great developmental coach. If you look at the progress that Jokic and Harris and Barton and, and all of our young guys made in one year, even Jakar Sampson, I think he has to get some credit for that, him and his staff, because it was so consistent amongst everybody that was playing for the Nuggets. I do have questions about him, and, and, and this year was so funny because the team wasn't good, so it's hard to pick out and say, well, this is his fault. But I do have questions about some of his schemes and, and, and some of the trends through his team. The Kings teams that he coached were awful defensively. The Nuggets, I think, second to last in defensive rating and second to last in letting wide open three point, opponent wide-open three-point shots. When those things happen, those are signs of, of something systematic happening with your defense. And when I watch them play, I think they over-rotate on defense a lot. I think they, they double too obviously, too deliberately. They don't contain guys on the perimeter. That might just be a young roster, but the fact that it's happened now in both of his stops, those same statistics, tells me there might be something off to what he's doing. But this was year one. I'm very much inclined to give him year two and probably year three before I give a final judgment. It's interesting to hear you say that because while he deserves a fair amount of the credit for the core of the Warriors team really caring defensively and getting a lot better, which is a big part of their success, right. when he was a part of the Warriors, actually the entire Jackson tenure, even after he left, my biggest criticism of their defense was that they over-rotated. They were over-aggressive <laughs> really on help, and they, they, weren't, you know, they weren't settling in and being like, okay, we have this. And that was one of the adjustments that Ron Adams and Kerr and all that brought in when they, when they came in, though they had set a good foundation. And so it is funny to hear that again, because you're right, that was a, a thing that was an issue with the Kings and with the Nuggets. I also do think, though, with Malone, 
because he didn't really, he wasn't with the Warriors when they had Bogut, that getting that real defensive anchor at the center position could really help because the Sacramento team was hopeless in that. And Denver, you know, we'll see, we'll see who they play and when, but if right. Nurkic can become that guy, like Nurkic could be the best defensive center Malone right. has coached in a long time. And that's a pretty amazing statement. And that's, that's something to keep my eye on. And that's why I'm going to reserve judgment. It's almost silly to bring up a criticism that specific about a team that, that just has so many holes like the Nuggets do, but it is, something i noticed and it's funny to hear to hear you say that about golden state because yeah they are one of the reasons they're able to dominate this finals is their rotations are so well timed so i i hope it's something that changes over time and like you said the right words it might be a developmental thing where year one you get guys to over rotate and in year two you you pull back because it's easier to pull back than than to push them to rotate harder yeah that could very well be true yeah anything else you want to go through you know that, that that's most of it, I would say, I think Gary Harris, we didn't really talk about him, and he's a guy that I think is really, really good player with one flaw, and his flaw is that he's kind of short. He's listed, I think, at 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and I, I just from sizing him up, I'm 6'5", I would guess he's about 6'3". And I think defensively, he's a phenomenal defensive player, and he nails the role that he's given when he's guarding guys his size or smaller. The problem is... When we didn't have a lot of depth, depth at two and three, and a lot of height at the at the two and three spot, he guarded a lot of guys that were taller than him. Uh, Andrew Wiggins just killed him this year. Kobe Bryant killed him. Had one of his best games of the season against him, and it was just because he gets in the post and they turn around and shoot over him. When you take away those matchups, Gary Harris was a phenomenal player and one of the guys that made the biggest leaps from rookie to sophomore season. Yeah, I like him defending ones a lot more than twos, actually. It, he won't get that opportunity all the time, but I, right. I would love to see him do that. And Gary, I, I think, and this is not meant to denigrate him at all, I think that his best role is to be a, a valued, loved bench player on a good team. It might be. It's very, very possible. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, especially when you, when you take a guy, I can't remember if he was late lottery or early post lottery, but you know, in the teens. Right. There's, there's, there's no shame in having a guy like that become that. And, and you can have him start and be a, a, a nice little contributor to a team like the Nuggets. And then you grow up beyond him. And there are players like that strewn around the league. If he develops his ball handling, because I mentioned earlier that he's really good at catching and he's good at finishing and cutting, if he can get to the point where he's reliable, maybe not a, a flashy player in pick and rolls, but if he's just reliable so that when the ball swings he can attack and not turn it over, then I think his game becomes a lot more valuable. But you're right, he's kind of in between a starter and a bench player, but either way he'll be very valuable, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a bunch, Danny. Thanks again to Adam Mares for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Denver Stiffs, Nylon Calculus, Vice, Heart of Paroxysm, basically anywhere else you want to. He's a great writer, and you can also follow him on Twitter at A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. Really enjoyed having him on. Enjoy his work a lot. And um, the Denver offseason, I think, has been underappreciated, partially because it isn't as sexy and partially because it isn't as definite as some of the other ones, you know, team like the Lakers or the Magic or somebody like that who has space and it looks like they're going to use it as opposed to Denver, which can be a little bit more flexible and more judicious about it and very well could be for the reasons Adam discussed when we talked about it. But I think they could end up being a big factor in it. And I like teams that are young and have a bright future and they have a little bit more flexibility than let's say Minnesota, who of course is in a wonderful position as well. And it's not really a competition in that way, but they're both interesting. Also wanted to, to take a little bit of time just to, to talk a little bit about Muhammad Ali. While I'm young enough that I never got to see him box, 
Ali was always an inspiration to me because of his choice to take principled stands and to be himself publicly. And I mean, the Vietnam War is, of course, is, is of course a very prominent one. And the fact that he gave up his livelihood in the prime of his career for something that he believed in without the knowledge that he would be able to compete again and much less be able to compete again at a high level is the kind of sacrifice that, that we don't see very often from anybody, much less athletes who have so much money on the line. And I really do admire that. And he is somebody who was so thoughtful and so genuine that I, I highly encourage any of you who haven't really done that in the last couple days since his passing to look to watch some of the interviews that he's done, even single answers to certain ones or the whole thing. It's uh, amazing, and the quotes are great, and, and I'm sure that th those will resonate with people, and, and they should. But for me, giving him the time to really explain himself and to go into some of his answers, you can tell what he was working with, and I do lament sometimes that it is there is so much on the line now that it is, while... I guess justifiable is a weird word for it, but like, I, I guess I do understand why modern athletes can't do the same thing that, that he did just because they're businesses now. I mean, I think about the quote that's attributed to Michael Jordan. You can think about a lot of other things. And we are seeing a little bit more of that now. And it was interesting to see what LeBron said in light of it, because LeBron is somebody who deserves credit for taking principled stands at moments that really resonated with him. And I think that's a good thing that the NBA is actually taking more of a lead in than most of the other North American professional sports leagues. And I commend them for that. So rest in peace to Muhammad Ali. Uh, we're going to miss his voice in the national conversation. And that is an amazing vindication of where things were, you know, just 40 years ago, the fact that he, he is now revered in this way when he was frequently reviled for exactly the same stances at that time. So thank you so much for listening. It has been so much fun doing this. It's very possible, depending on how this goes, that this will be the last podcast that is was recorded during the NBA season. We'll see where the, where the playoffs go, but it's been so much fun to cover it, and it'll be a lot of fun to dissect it once it's actually over. So thank you so much for listening. Continue to listen. Of course, Real Jam Radio will go strong throughout the summer, off-season, as it may be. As many of you know, I'm a big CBA guy, so the off-season isn't the off-season for me. And, of course, you can read my, my work in terms of the sporting news and the athletic and Real GM, previewing and previewing every team's off-season for the sporting news, and Nate Duncan and I on Dunkdown are also doing off-season previews as well. Different angles on it, partially because of the constraints of each medium, but they combine for a picture, so if you want to listen to a single team, you can do that. If you want to do a lot more, you can do that as well. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that is a really big help. It's something that we're actually seeing with Dunkdown that's really helping us move, and of course, just word of mouth is a very positive thing. Also, with this show, and with Dunked On, I guess. You can reach out to me at Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or NBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to what I can. Right now, responding to what I can is very little. That hopefully will change eventually. Who knows? But it has been... It's great to get that kind of feedback, and I really do appreciate it. And I, I, As I said, I really do read everything. So appreciate all of you who have taken the time to do so, and all of you who will over the next weeks and months to come. So thanks again for listening, take care, and make it a great day.
Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-Foot by 10-Foot Shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.